Nehemiah, this is our last message in a series on the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, through the book, we've seen that what people do mattered, that, that individually what they did mattered, and then what they do then together, the impact that that has on the whole. What you do matters. What you do together matters. What God will do through you matters. Okay? We saw that in chapter 1 where Nehemiah himself, he hears, he hears of something, something that's not good, and he's, his, his own heart is burdened by it. He's got to do something about it. He begins to pray about it. Chapter 2, he takes a risk. He goes to the king, not knowing what the response is going to be, but he's compelled. And in prayer, he spoke to God, and then he spoke to the king. And then he comes to Jerusalem, and he, he rallies the people. He challenges them together that what we do will matter. The good hand of our God is upon us. And the people gather together. And an image that I've had more people remind me of through this series than any other was that one picture I showed you of a section of the wall. And the brickwork there is just awful. They used, they used pieces of broken stone and rubble cobbled together somehow to make that section of the wall and that tower. And it's lousy work. I suggested to you something worth doing is worth doing poorly. But that section of the wall, I, I said that was the part that the priest and the perfumers probably did. They knew nothing about a building with stone. And yet they rolled up their sleeves and they joined the work. And what they did mattered. In fact, what they did continues to stand. 2,500 years later. I don't know of anything in this country 2,500 years ago that's still standing. I don't know much anywhere that is that old that is still standing. And yet there it is. What they did mattered. What we do matters. And it has an effect longer None of those priests and perfumers building that section of the tower would know that my own faith would be encouraged in seeing the quality of their work. That God can make something that I may not be very good at, but God can make it last. As Tyler prayed concerning each of his kids, that he is faithful. Well, as we close the book of Nehemiah, we're going to get another side of that. We, we just saw last week a chain of events, how one thing seems to affect another. In chapter 12, from verse 44, some, some were appointed over the storehouses. And then they're appointed over the storehouses so the Levites could be serving. And as the Levites are faithfully serving, then the people are bringing in an abundance, an offering to the Lord that is distributed to the Levites and through them to the priest as well. They are being provided for. And the people, that, that section closes in the opening verses of chapter 13 with the people themselves hearing God's word and responding to it. They have tender hearts toward God and his word. They hear and they respond. But then, in chapter 13 and verse 4 and following, we get to look the other direction. There's a, there's a period of time that has gone by, at least 12 years, perhaps longer. And after that passing of time, things have changed a little bit. So that now we have the same pattern, interestingly enough, but you see a different chain of events. Rather than reliable men pointed over the storehouse and the, and the Levites serving and people offering and the, and, the, and the distribution is happening and people are hearing and responding to God's word, instead, now there's corruption in the storehouse. 
The Levites are leaving. They're going back to their own fields because they are not being provided for. And the people are striving and working and seeking to provide for themselves on the Sabbath, and they are neglecting the hearing of and particularly the responding to God's Word. So you see another chain of events that seems to be related, but it's, it's a chain of events related in the wrong direction. It's an interesting contrast. And uh, there's, a, there's a pivotal point in the middle that seems to move us from one direction to the other. So I want you to be thinking about that, that individual choices, your own decisions, the things that you choose to do or not to do, what you do matters. It can matter for harm, and as we see in Nehemiah, it can matter for good. So then, let's get into, I'll, I'll, I'll read, I want you to look for those, four, those, those moves as I've described them as I'm reading through, that there is the giving of that which should be devoted to God that's given to others. There's a faithful stewardship that is abandoned. There's a, a resting in God's rest that is neglected, and then Along with that comes the neglecting of the nurturing of faith in others. So watch for these moves as we read in Nehemiah chapter 13 from verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib the priest. Now this is a different priest than Eliashib the high priest. This, was, this is a younger man, later in time, but same name. He was appointed over the chambers of the house of the Lord. And, who, and he was related to Tobiah. He prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. So he takes a storeroom that was used for articles of worship, the grain offerings and the incense offerings in the temple to God, as well as for the collection of the tithes and offerings from the people that was distributed to provide for the Levites and the priests. And he takes that room, he moves all that out, and he takes that room and he gives it to Tobiah the Ammonite. Now while this was taking place, how does this happen? Nehemiah says, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king of Babylon, I went to the king. He leaves Jerusalem, he goes back to Susa. And after some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came back to Jerusalem again. Maybe he'd heard of what was going on. I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry. I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber, then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work, they had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials, and I gathered them together, and I set them in their stations. Then all of Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the wine, the oil, into the storehouse. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses... Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zechur, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, trustworthy. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers, parentheses, not to enrich themselves. 
Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds, that which I have done in covenant faithfulness to you, for the house of my God and for his servants. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, and figs and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, not as an offering being brought to the temple, but as goods to be sold on the Sabbath. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also from Tyre, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and I said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing, profaning or making common as any other day, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not our fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all of this disaster on us and on this city, carrying us away into exile? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath, treating it as common, just like any other day. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. And the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice, trying to entice people to buy and sell. But I warned them. And I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. And not, I take it, for prayer. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast covenant love. In those days, I also saw the Jews, Jewish people, children of Abraham, Sons of the covenant who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half their children spoke the language of Ashdod. They could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give up your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Didn't the king of didn't Solomon, king of Israel, sin in this way? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him to sin, going after other gods. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat. There's this priest who's the grandson of Eliashib, the high priest of chapter 3 and following. And he has become the son-in-law of Senballat, the enemy of God's people, who single-handedly had interrupted the building of the wall. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember me, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood, the covenant of the priesthood, and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for good. Well, there's a lot here. 
there's a, there's, a, there's a lot. But, but one of the things you see, one of the things I want us to get is when, where the turn comes, what happens from the end of chapter 12 into these events of chapter 13, there's a key episode in the middle that is a hinge, hinge passage. And it's introduced by a phrase that gets our attention but it might confuse us. So he says, now before this. Now before this is before these things that he's going to describe, the things that follow, the things that come, the things that the people do that he's about to describe, before all of that, there was this. There was this that happened while Nehemiah was away. While Nehemiah is away, Tobiah will play. And he has moved himself. He has used his political um, calculations. And he's pressured his, um, apparently, um, somebody that he's got connections with. He's related to this priest who is in charge of the room assignments, the use of different chambers and facilities within the temple for storage of various things. And he's got all of that to be pushed out. The things that were related to God's worship, the grain for the grain offerings, the incense used in lifting prayers to God, that has been pushed aside so that Tobiah the Ammonite can have some sweet digs in the temple where he does not belong. Do you remember how earlier in chapter 6 they'd actually conspired against Nehemiah and they tried to convince him, hey, it's not safe, we need to talk, but it's not safe out here. Let's go inside the temple, which was its own fortress within the city. Let's go in the temple and we'll talk there because they're coming for you. There's a plot against your life and you need to be somewhere safe. And Nehemiah says, no, 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 no. I'll trust myself to God, thank you. I am not going to transgress against the Lord by going in the temple where I, not a priest, should not tread. He doesn't do it. But Tobiah doesn't have any such scruples. Tobiah is not. He would use Nehemiah's faith against him, but he has no such faith. To him, this is just the most prestigious place to live in the city. He would dare to make God's house his own. Oh, the audacity. Oh, the pride of this man, Tobiah. But at what cost? The storeroom has been corrupted. There are rats in God's pantry. And what this Eliashib has done matters. But it doesn't matter for God. He has chosen to make himself the friend of Tobiah instead of the friend of God, and it's going to have an effect. It's going to have an effect on others. One of the first effects we see is in verses 10 to 14, the Levites are leaving. The Levites, absent the distribution to provide for them and their families so they can devote themselves to the work around the temple, there is no provision. Their children are hungry. They go back to their own towns and villages where they have fields that they can farm to provide for themselves. This suggests as well, if you're talking about farming, it doesn't happen overnight. This is an extended thing. And all this has happened during that time after Nehemiah's 12 years of governorship. See, how does this happen? How does Nehemiah let it go that far? Well, Nehemiah has gone back to Susa. His term, I don't know if he was term limited after 12 years. I'm not sure what the rules were. But he, he returns back to the king, King Artaxerxes. He leaves the city and its leadership in the hands of others whom he thought would be reliable. 
Apparently they were not. And while he's away, the rats will play. And while he's away, these things happen. We don't know how long he's gone. It's got to be at least a year. It's probably more than that. I take it that the book of Malachi, the prophet Malachi, the last book in the, in the Old Testament, that that book is written, it des- what it describes of Malachi's ministry fits the very kinds of things that are going on in Nehemiah's absence. So I take it Nehemiah is governor for 12 years, and they're good years. But then Nehemiah goes back, and it begins to unravel. Just a little at first, but there's a tipping point. It happens in a storeroom. And then things go down quickly from there. What Eliashib has done is going to matter, and it's going to matter for harm. And then Nehemiah comes back, and then he begins to correct. You know, there's a verse in in James. James warns about friendship of the world. James warns about these kind of corrupting, of taking that which which is devoted to God and giving it to others. James says that, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, but he, God, gives more grace. And there are times when that grace comes in the form of a Nehemiah. It may come even in the form of slapping and cursing and pulling hair, as we'll see. Could that actually be, in this moment, God's grace for these people? Well, the enemy has gained a foothold, and it has impacted the faithful stewardship that these Levites are given a stewardship, and they've abandoned it because of the lack of provision and even the corruption that they've seen in their own leadership. They, the Levites have left. They've gone back home, and, and that has an impact. That has an impact back home. The people who live back home, the people of Judah in all of these towns and all of these villages see those whom God set apart for a particular stewardship that they were to be faithful to. And when they're not faithful to it, when they go back to provide for themselves, the people of Judah, maybe they discern or maybe they rationalize that, well, if God's not providing for his Levites, he's not going to provide for us. We're, we're going to have to work even harder because we're obviously on our own. And it's probably tough times. And they begin working on the Sabbath as well, working to provide for themselves. So the Levites abandoning their stewardship leads to the people working for themselves. You know, this neglect of the Sabbath is not merely a neglect of rest. It's needing to work instead. It's a relying on myself for what I need, what I want to achieve, what I think is going to satisfy me. It's striving after it myself instead of believing and trusting God. Goes all the way back to the manna in the wilderness thing. Do you remember that? God says, going to be manna every morning. Come and get it. Breakfast is served, and they come, and they're like, wow, this is really cool. They say, what is it? That's what the Hebrew word manna means, what is it? So that's what God told them to call it. What is it? We don't even know what it is. God has just dropped it for us. And they gather it up, and some of them gathered a bunch. They said, man, this is good. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, so I'm going to get a bunch of extra. And the next day, it was rotted and stank and full of worms. God said, no, 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 I will provide for you daily. Give us this day our daily bread, Jesus said. 
I will provide for you daily. Don't gather up extra. It won't last. But each day, go, except on the Sabbath day. You're not to work on the Sabbath. So on Friday, there will be extra manna. On Friday, get two portions. Fill two tubs full. And the next day, they say, well, I don't know. Last time, that didn't work so well. It stank and there were worms. They said, no, no, no. You trust me. Trust God in his promise and his provision. And they did. Those that did, yeah, the manna was delicious the next day. They made banana bread. It was wonderful. <laughs> but there were those that didn't trust and didn't gather extra on Friday, and they're out there Saturday, and guess what? There is nothing to be gathered. Relying on themselves instead of trusting God. And that's what Sabbath rest is all about. Sometimes you'll feel pushed. I've got to strive harder on my own. Some of the ways we'll neglect God's rest is we'll beware, we, we will end up putting work or other important things ahead of our practice of devotion and worship to God. It may be there's something else really important on Sundays. It may be that there's other distractions that intrude upon your time for devotion. They seem important enough at the time. But in eternity, they won't matter a lick. But time when I could have been growing, deepening, and knowing my God and Savior, that, that shapes my soul for all of eternity, that time is past. Those opportunities are gone. But striving in a problem. Haven't you been in that place where you worked hard, you did everything you could, you tried this, you tried that, you even... Uh, kind of went into some questionable efforts because there was nothing else to do and none of it worked and finally you said, well, there's nothing I can do. All we can do is pray. Well, gee, what if we'd started over there in the first place? What if we just started there and prayed first? How much easier might have all of this other been? You know some people that pray about everything. I mean, after a while, it drives you nuts, doesn't it? Oh, Lord, please, would you provide us a parking place right up front when they pull into the parking lot? And, and oh, there is one. Somebody's just leaving. Oh, thank you, Lord. Isn't Jesus good? He gave me a spot right up front. You're like, oh, give me a break, would you? But I'll tell you what. I find that refreshing as compared to those of us that forget to pray about much of anything. Really, we could do with more. Now, now, once God provides an empty parking place right up front, say, thank you, Lord. And yet, I'm able-bodied, you know. I'm going to save that one for somebody that needs it more than me. I'll go park over there. That'd be good, too. But, but I, I love the enthusiasm of faith that does believe that God is in the midst of my daily life. He does work in us, both to will and to do. Neglecting God's rest leaves me to need to strive in my own, even if it means working when I should be resting and giving thanks to God for what he has done. But for these people, hey, they learned synagogue in captivity. And synagogue was the time when they gathered together to hear God's word. But they're not gathering to hear God's word. Why? Because they're busy loading their donkeys to take them to Jerusalem, which Nehemiah is going to close for business anyway. And it's like the description in Haggai chapter 1 that happened earlier, but they've forgotten. 
That, that they, are, they are working hard and striving to earn money that they put into purses with holes in them. That it doesn't even seem to go as far as it needs to go. What happened? Why? I can't, I, I can't think of the times when I've counted my resources, when I've done my own little bit of David's numbering, and after I've numbered and said, okay, the resources look pretty good, then wham, some expensive bill comes. And I didn't see that coming. And God reminds me again, I know. You don't know. So why are you counting resources for what you don't know when I will provide for you what I do know? And I learned to stop counting and to trust in the Lord that he would provide for my needs. Neglecting God's rest is a result of not trusting him. That's why they're striving on their own. We can trust the Lord. But because they're neglecting God's rest, they're not, they're not gathered together to sit under God's word on the Sabbath in the synagogue. They end up intentionally neglecting the nurturing of the faith of others. And that's where Nehemiah really gets, gets riled up. It's not just about who are they marrying, but in who they're marrying, they're abandoning their faith. This is not a case of Boaz marrying the Moabite woman because Ruth and Boaz's children are raised in the faith of Israel because Ruth declares, um, your God will be my God. This is not happening here. One of the evidences of that is that the children are being raised. You know how you have a couple of people get married, one's of one faith, one's another, and the discussion, well, how are we going to raise the children? And one of the solutions is we won't raise them in any faith at all. We'll just let them decide. Okay? Huh. Or, oh, I get you, just whatever you think. That's what's going on here. There's no intentionality about the faith of the children so that they're growing up, learning the language of the Philistines. Can you imagine? God has restored them from captivity back to Jerusalem to be its holy city in this place to make God and his ways known to the world and the kids are learning the ways of the Philistines. That's what they're learning. They're not understanding what's being taught in synagogue because they don't know the language. They don't know Hebrew or Aramaic. They're not knowing anything about understanding anything about what's happening in the temple. They're Hebrewly, biblically, temple and worship illiterate. They're only learning the ways of the world around them. And that's more than Nehemiah can take. So why is he slapping and cursing and pulling hair? That seems a little extreme, doesn't it? I mean, golly, that's not the Christian thing to do, right? This slapping, cursing, we're not supposed to curse. Well, don't think of the cursing as bad language. Thinking it, think of it as declaring God's judgment upon them. Think of it as, as applying to them the covenantal curse of those who leave the worship of God and trust themselves to other gods instead. Of those who set God's laws and his ways aside. Rather than God's blessing upon them, God's curse will be upon them. That is what Nehemiah is declaring. He is saying this is serious business. He's even pulling hair. Now, what's with hair pulling? Even in Nehemiah, you, you see, well, no, no, in the book of Ezra, you see Ezra pulling out his own hair. Oh, there's the, there's the life of a minister, right? Ezra pulling out his own hair in grief and mourning 
over what is happening among God's people. See, pulling out of one's hair or cutting off one's hair, even plucking one's beard or shaving one's beard was an indication of either mourning or grief or repentance or shame. It was shame. One, the, the, one time there was these servants of David who half of their beard was cut off. And that was to shame them. It was to ridicule them. It was to humiliate them. But a man might shave his own beard. He might cut off his own hair in mourning because of somebody who had died. Or it might be that he's mourning. His grief is actually about what he himself has done. And it's instead repentance. But there's an outward sign. You think of fasting with sackcloth and ashes, and they might even throw dust on themselves. It's a humiliation of self. Even because of our brokenness, our mortality, that we cannot keep ourselves, grieving death, or it's in repentance because of our sin and the people put on sackcloth and ashes. And that's what's going on here. The pulling out of hair, Nehemiah is helping them mourn. He's he's saying, this is what you should be doing. Rather than congratulating on yourselves, on your cleverness and your good life and your new wife, you should be pulling out your own hair in grief and repentance for what you are doing. So that's what's going on there. But, But the big story of it is the failure to nurture the faith of others, particularly the children. Nehemiah's Closing words show us again the other side of that. Now, I suggested that sometimes God's grace in the midst of our unfaithfulness, sometimes God's grace is to send us a Nehemiah. Sometimes God's grace is to be a Nehemiah, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's not the most popular stand to take, to go ahead and get into the life of somebody else because what you do matters. Just like what we do can matter in ways further than we realize. It's going to have a longer effect from our own spiritual life to the church in which we gather or used to gather in, maybe even in our marriage, maybe even among our children. It's going to have a longer impact than we realize. We don't know what's going to get spilled or splashed as a result of the things we might choose or just happen to do. So also is the same kind of chain reaction for good. What you do for good matters. What Nehemiah does for good matters. And let's close on that note. First of all, verse 29, he trusts. He trusts God with this nonsense that has been going on. Verse 29, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priests and the Levites. God, this is your business. God, this is your covenant. God, this is your priesthood. Lord, don't let this slide. Lord, deal with it. Purify for yourself a people. Verse 30, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign. I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work. What Nehemiah prays for God to do, Nehemiah then is moved by God to do. And Nehemiah, even before Jesus, was the one to cleanse the temple. Nehemiah cleansed them from everything foreign. I established the duties of the priests and the Levites, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first, first fruits. Nehemiah steps in, he purifies, he cleanses, he reestablishes, he sets them back up in ministry again. 
He even provides the first, the, 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 the first shipment of wood for the, for the offerings at the altar. Somebody asked me this week, well, why is Nehemiah providing the wood? Didn't they draw lots that certain of the Levites were going to be providing the wood? Yes, they did. And yet the Levites left. And they're coming back, and they don't have the wood with them. They now need to get started again, and Nehemiah does what God does for us. He not only calls them into ministry, he not only calls them back to ministry that maybe they're not worthy, they haven't been faithful in, yet he calls them back into it, and then he provides for them again what they need to get going. Nehemiah is showing us again, he's showing them again, what God looks like in the midst of their unfaithfulness. When we are unfaithful, yes, he remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. God has to be who he is. And that's a good thing for us, that he will be faithful in his promise toward us. You may feel like, well, I haven't been faithful. I, I allowed some rats into the cupboard and they took over. And I don't know how to get it back. I realize the effect of it. I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in our family. I've seen it in our choices. I've seen it in, in, in what's, what life looks like today. And I'm not sure if I can get back. God will cleanse you. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to for, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He will cleanse us. He will reestablish you in your role as a kingdom of priests unto God. And he will provide what you need to serve him. And so Nehemiah concloses on these words, Remember me, O God, for good. He closes not merely saying, Remember me, O God, for the good that I have done. God, remember me for your good. Lord, in the midst of all this, in the midst of this brokenness, in the midst of things not being as they're supposed to be, oh God, we need your good. Lord, remember me. In the faithfulness of your covenant, remember me for good. God, I want good in life. God, I want blessing. I want life to be more than it is. And yet the good of that can only come from you. What you do matters. What you do matters, so stay faithful in the stewardship God has given you. Continue to rest in his rest for you and his provision for you. And continue to step into the nurturing of the faith of others around you. Following Jesus by helping others to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time in the book of Nehemiah. Thank you, Lord, for what you show us there of you. And Lord, thank you for the reminder of your faithfulness. Lord, strengthen us then to be faithful in reply, to live out some of the faithfulness that we have received from you. And Father, help us then in the midst of our own unfaithfulness to repent, to turn, to call again upon the God who is our Savior, to trust no longer in our own way, but in your way, and there to know the joy, the blessing, the fullness of life we were made for with you. 
We pray that, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.